This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Well, I'm uh, in a little over my head with this one. This is uh, just a tremendously challenging message for me. I, I feel like I needed about three weeks for this one, and somehow I ended up giving it today. And so that's good, though. It keeps me off balance and makes me dependent, and there's nothing better than that. Uh, this particular theme, though, I think there's, you'll understand what I mean as we go along. There's a, a difficulty in it, and for North American Christians, it's extra difficult, I think, because we have a version of Christianity that, in a sense, has, knows these scriptures, but has not really allowed them to sink deeply into the soil of our lives and change us the way that many Christians throughout history have been changed by them. And as a result, I feel it. Even as I'm getting close to them, there's this desire to justify and to keep certain truths at a distance or keep them at bay lest they totally alter the way I live. And so I want us to just be welcoming to the Word of God and to the Holy Spirit and just say God's right. And if that means a complete overhaul of our existence, well, let's let him have his way. The sharing of the body, a study in the amazing fellowship of believers. One of the challenges of this message for me is See, I love this body. I really do. And I, I mean that when I say that. I'm not just saying it because I'm supposed to say it. I, I genuinely mean that. And yet, it still scares me at a certain level to entrust myself to you guys and to share the life of Eric Ludi wholly and fully. Oh, I want to share it. Don't get me wrong. But I find that there are certain things in the back of my mind that say, watch out. You remember that one time you did that, Eric, and you got stabbed? Remember the one time you did that and you got betrayed? Remember the one time? You see, this is... It's very common in Christianity today. We have something that hollers behind us that is constantly whispering why we need to be very watchful with the body of Christ. I've said this before, but there are certain things in God's creation that are supposed to be the safe places. A mother's womb is supposed to be one of the safest places on earth. I mean, could you think of a better place to hang out than in a mother's womb? I mean, that's a place of love and safety and security, and yet it's become, in our day and age, one of the greatest uh, places of death, and uh, say a, a family, well, that's another safe place, and yet for many of us, we've felt more pain in our family environment, our home environment, than we have anywhere else, uh, the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, so in other words, just to give you a, just a statement, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a safe place, and yet today, because of the nature and the makeup of how Christianity is today, we oftentimes find that we have to approach it uh, with um, a defense system fully engaged, lest we find ourselves repeating uh, certain aches and pains that we've gone through in the past. 
And I just want you to know, I mean, I, I've ventured forward into territory like this in the past. I'm willing to go beyond where my comfort zone is. I'm willing to bust out of that which I would mo- feel most comfortable with to find truth and to find what we are supposed to discover as the body. And that's sort of what this message is. The sharing of the body. Now, when you hear the word the body, the body of Christ, for instance, is a very common term in the church, and it means two different things historically. There was an actual body of Jesus, and it lived, it breathed on this earth 2,000 years ago. It suffered and died on a cross. It was buried and then was raised to newness of life and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. A real body. And it was called the body of Christ, or the body of the Messiah, the body of Jesus. And yet that same term is then given to those that believe in Jesus, and we become the body of Christ. In the same way that he lived on this earth, in the same way that he died on a cross, you see, the same thing that he evidenced is the same thing we are supposed to show. We're supposed to show that very same life of Jesus Christ, and that's why we're called the body of Christ. So uh, Hudson made a statement last week that he always likes my messages with illustrations. I said, oh, you like those illustrations, huh? So this is dedicated to Hudson. I stuck some illustrations in. I mean, that's, that's some good stuff right there, okay? Uh, and now I know that Jesus is a lot more beautiful than that, but there's a body. In other words, you see the body right there. And so Jesus, what did he do with his body? See, the way that God has chosen to change the world in which we live is in and through, I know this is going to sound strange at first, but in and through bodies. He chose a body of a man, and that is how he did his saving work. He could have just, you know, come down in a cloud of glory and done something, but God's system, his economy of rescue, his economy of justice, his economy of redemption seems to involve bodies. And so God chose the body of a man. And in it, he dwelt. The fullness of the God had dwelt in that body. We know this man is Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave that body. And the reason you even are gathered here today, the reason we have hope is because of the sharing of the body. Okay? So I'm just laying a foundation. We're going to call it the doctrine of sharing. The sharing of the body. As a basic principle in the body that you have entered into, there is a givenness, and we're going to use the word sharing today, but, you know, when you have your toy and the other kid wants to play with it, what does your mom always say? Hey, I, I want you to share your toys. Okay, it's like, mine. Kids are very good at declaring mine. I, they, I don't even know if you teach a child the word mine, and they learn it. They learn the word no and mine. Isn't that weird? It's like intrinsic within them. Whatever language they are born into, they just know the language, and whatever it is, like mine. And they, they say it, and there's a propensity that we have, and yet the kingdom that we've entered into doesn't seem to have the same idea. It seems to have the idea of, I recognize that this is my property, but I desire to share it with you. That's what God did. It's his kingdom. It's not ours, but he shared it with us. He gave himself so that we could enter into what is his So I'm just going to give you three scriptures just to lay the foundation for the doctrine of sharing. God had something. He had a love so great, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, there's the basis of the doctrine of sharing. It's the movement of God's heart towards us. Luke 22, and he took bread, speaking of Jesus, 
gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus gave his body and he makes it very clear to those he's given it to. He says, this is my body and I'm giving it to you. I'm, it's being broken for you. And John 13, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus did something, and it startles us. When you actually see it, I know most of you just know it as a historical event, and sometimes it loses its luster because we've heard it so many times. But this one gave everything he had to those that didn't even want it, ironically. He died for us when we were even yet sinners. We were living in darkness, and yet he shared his life with us. And then this same one that shared says, hey, look, guys, the same way I'm going to wash your feet, the same way I'm going to give of my body, I want you to do this one for each other. You're not greater than your master. You should do as your master does. So there's that body of Jesus, right? And inside of it is some good stuff. And we can call it the historic understanding of the gospel. Jesus goes to the cross and dies. The way that we would typically understand it is he dies to the first, to the first life, that he condemns sin in the flesh. He's buried. Then he's resurrected. He ascends and into this exalted position of intimacy and closeness at the right hand of the Father. So I'm using those terms very specifically. If you're an Ellerslie student, you, these things sound vaguely familiar to something we shared on Friday. We went through a message called Reckoning with Truth. And what we see is that Jesus has something. It's his body, not ours. I mean, that's his body. And it's his life that he lived. It's his death that he died. That was his burial. That was his resurrection. That was his ascension. And it's his seat. And therefore, what claim would we have to that? It's his life. He did it perfectly. What a triumph. And we can stare from a distance and go, wow, what an amazing man that was. And yet the whole point is for God so loved the world that he gave us that life. In other words, this is a life that you couldn't live. You cannot approach the throne of grace. You are not perfect. You are not holy, holy, holy as he is. So he sent his own body. He sent his own life down. And he gave it to us in order that we might participate. Jesus accomplished it, but how do we share in that accomplishment? So I'm going to, we're going to open up the side of Jesus here. I mean, I'm not the one that opened it up. There's this Roman soldier with a spear at the cross that opens it up and out flows a river. And many of us don't understand what flowed out of Jesus' side as a river, but you have to understand that biblically speaking, it is. Out of their innermost will flow rivers of living water, Jesus uh, foreshadows. And what we see is blood and water coming out, and blood to the Hebrew is life. And so we have life water, living water, that gushes out. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit that is given. The life of God is given at the cross. And so that little opening, that doorway into Jesus, we're going to call it suffering. Jesus suffered. He died in order that a door or a way may be opened. You see that little opening there? We can actually climb inside. 
And that's how the gospel works. You see, Jesus gave his life. He didn't just accomplish his great life and then take it for his own. And, you know, he's exalted at the right hand of the Father, and the Father pats him on the back and says, well done, son. Well, that could have been the story. However, the reason he was sent, he could have just stayed there. Instead, he was sent to accomplish something, and that's to make a way. To make a way into what? Into himself. Where we might share in his death. Where we might share in his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And his closeness with the Father. That we might be brought near unto the Father. Even though we are not righteous. Even though we are not perfect. Even though we are not holy. He is. And when by faith we climb inside of his suffering through his wounds. Through what he gave to us. He says, here I'm sharing my life. I'm opening the door. Please trust me with your life. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. You see, there is a death that is required. Your first life is under judgment. And you must be born again for salvation. However, how are you going to be born again? How are you going to figure that one out? You see, you need to have a new life given you. But to receive a new life, you must lose the first. And have you ever noticed that you can't lose your first life? How do you get away from it? It just sticks to you. And so the key of getting rid of your first life is to actually believe in Jesus. And what you find is that his death on that cross deals with your first life. And so you couldn't deal with your first life. He did. And that's what it's saying in Hebrews. He tasted death for all of us, for everyone. You see, he did the work on our behalf and then he shares it with us. The sharing of the body. It's also the sharing of the sufferings. He suffered and then we share in the benefits of what he gained for us. In Jesus is found the answer to our every dilemma. So what you're going to find in life is that you have stuff stuck to you. There's issues that you face and you can't get past them without help. I mean, of course, we have the big issue of eternal damnation and condemnation because we are sinners. We are separated from the love of God. We are separated from the person of God and the presence of God. And so therefore, Jesus has come and made a way for us to actually have all of those remedied. And so the same picture we were showing before, but basically, what we walked through with our students on Friday was what we call the engine of the gospel, how the gospel actually functions in our life. It functions by us recognizing what Jesus did and us actually taking hold of it. So if there's a door open there, I would say, get in. And so we talked about the idea of being in Christ. It's not an accident that Paul uses the term in. It's not on or near, it's inside. It's basically the concept of by faith, you are brought in to the person of Jesus Christ. Well, in Jesus is a death to your old man. In Jesus is a burial for your old life, so it's no longer visible to this world. In Jesus is a resurrection unto a newness of life, a new creature in Christ Jesus. There's an ascension unto the very closest. It says, boldly enter the throne room of grace. Could I do that? In Christ we have access unto the very presence of God. And so this is all available to us by faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you a combo package of Romans 6 and Ephesians 2 here. 
knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. See, many of us don't know this, that when we believe in Jesus and we climb in through his sufferings by faith, and we say, your sufferings, your death, are my salvation, Jesus. When we believe in him, then our old life is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now listen to what it says in Ephesians 2. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have the old man crucified, the body of sin destroyed. We're no longer slaves of sin. We're made alive together with Christ. We're raised up together with Christ and made to sit in heavenly places in Christ. So what we have is when we believe in Jesus, what we see is that he has shared something with us. Did you do anything to deserve that? You see, he has shared his body with us. The work in his body has been given to us. That is, by definition, grace. Jesus did a work on our behalf. He went and he labored for us and then gave that labor to us. The benefits, the reward of that labor he has shared with us. So, remember inside we had death to the old, burial, we had resurrection, ascension, and closeness. I'm switching those out for some new terms because I want to expand our understanding of what is available in Jesus. I'm putting in life, love, comfort, help, and power. Everything you need, as the Bible would say, for life and godliness is available to you in the person of Jesus. Now, the reason I'm sharing this with you, because some of you know these things. You've heard me talk about this 10,000 times, it would seem. At the same time, I want you to focus on something, and that is what we call the doctrine of sharing. Everything about the body of Christ is given. Everything is shared. Everything is offered up. He has so much, and he gives it all. Whoa, it's pretty extreme if you begin to recognize that we are the body of Christ. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through, and you have these in your notes, uh, and it's going to be a very quick overview of what the Bible says. This is leaving out quite a few things, by the way, of what we have by simply entering into Jesus Christ. And the meditation I want you to have as we go through this is I want you to recognize that Jesus has a lot to give. And he gives it to us. In Christ, all our sin will be atoned for. We will be justified. Forgiven our every sin, cleansed and washed from all our sin, and our consciences will be purged. In Christ, we'll have peace with God, be redeemed, be reconciled unto God, saved from the wrath to come. In Christ, we'll be clothed in his righteousness, receive life within eternal life, be brought back to life from the dead, be made alive to God, be sanctified and made holy, and be spiritually and physically healed. In Christ will we have boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies, enabled to make our daily, hourly, minute-by-minute minute home in Christ Jesus, bear much fruit, and set free from the law of sin and death. In Christ will be no more condemnation hanging over our lives, will be made inseparable from the love of God, have access to the wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, the redemption of God, and all the promises of God will be yes and amen to us. In Christ, our spiritual lives will be established and anointed. We'll be led forth in triumph. His fragrance will be diffused through our lives in every place. The veil that shrouds our spiritual sight will be taken away. We'll become new creations and all things will become new. In Christ, the complexities of life will be made simple. We will live by the power of God. We'll have an astounding liberty to now do that which is right. We'll become sons of God and be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, we'll be chosen to be holy and without blame, obtain an inheritance, be made to sit with him in heavenly places, be made to know the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. 
Discover works prepared beforehand for us to walk in and be brought intimately near into his very presence, having boldness and confidence in our approach unto his throne. In Christ, we will become the very temple of the Lord, have power to rejoice, have access into all the fullness of God, be clothed in his perfection, have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge made available to us. In Christ, we will abound in thanksgiving, be made complete, be circumcised from the sins of the flesh, be given a holy calling, be supplied and empowered in grace, have faith and love, salvation, and the love of God perfected in us. In Christ, there will be no more darkness, no unashamedness at his coming, and no more sinning. In Christ, we'll be purified just as he is pure. We will know him, and anything we ask according to his will, he will hear us. In Christ, we'll be given the Spirit. We will receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We'll be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, that's a, that's a summation list, too. In other words, the entirety of the Bible, if you want to enunciate it this way, is what has been made available to us in Jesus. The entire Old Testament is preparing us to recognize that we lack all of this. And it is a schoolmaster which is preparing us to say, where is that Messiah that we've longed for? And when the Messiah comes, God so loves us that he opens himself and the entire inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, his fortune, his wealth is made available to those that simply believe. You don't need to work for it. You don't need to try and earn it up. It is made available to those who simply turn to him in faith, and say, I trust you with my life. And everything that is in God is made available to us. It's staggering. So the way to summarize this, I'm going to give you two Greek words, and I'm going to define them in just a bit here. So I don't want you to be intimidated by them when you first see them. The first one looks like psyche. I know that's actually where it comes, the word psyche comes from, but it's actually in the Greek pronounced suke. Uh, and it basically is the life of God. Okay, so what we have is Jesus is making his suke, the very essence of his being. We understand it as the Holy Spirit, the very life of God that is made available, and also the huparkanta, I know, a big word, but it basically is, it's typically translated in the Greek as possessions or wealth or goods or property. Okay, so we'll look at this as his inheritance or his fortune. So all of Jesus, his life and fortune, he literally shares with us. Uh, I don't know how many people in your life you have given all of your life and all of your fortune and they have free access to it anytime they want. I mean, this is so outrageous. And the only reason we accept it intellectually is because, well, he's God, he does things like that. But we don't recognize that the very God who does things like that calls us his body and lives within us to continue, gulp, to do things like that. That's why this message is a little awkward. So I'm going to, instead of putting uh, suke and huperkanta in there, I'm going to just say what it is. It's his all. It's his everything. And so all, Jesus' all has been made available to us in and through what he has given. The doctrine of sharing. God so loved that he gave. And that son so loved that even though he received the highest position in all the inheritance of heaven, he made it available to us. Here, go, here it goes, guys. I did this for you. 
So now you're going to notice something's a little different from this one than the last one. There's a little something that got added in. And this is how Christianity works. I'm going to go into greater detail in helping you understand this. But basically, in essence, by the way, your all, which is what it says, your all is very small. Okay, in fact, it would be microscopic if we could do it, but it would be really hard for you to read it on here. So the concept is, to come to Christ, you need to give your all. And that's the idea of even being his disciple. If you really want to function the way Christianity is supposed to function, then you step inside, and in so doing, you offer your all to Jesus. And so you'll notice, in Christ is his all available to you, and you're all available to him. Now, I know I'm really going fast here. I mean, you're still struggling with seeing that Jesus gave his all to you. Now you're like, whoa, I think you just skipped a few steps, Eric. Now suddenly I gave my all? How did that happen? I don't know that I agreed to that. I'm not saying you agreed to that. I'm just saying that's what Christianity is. And I'm going to explain that for you scripturally. Now, I'm going to add another twist to this, which is going to help us understand what I'm talking about today. Because some of you, it's like, I know this, I know this, I know this, I know this. But do you know this? Now look at this. It's like Jesus' all is in Jesus, and it's made available to us, and we're receiving it when we step in by faith and we relinquish our all to him. And then right over here inside of Jesus is you. And what are you doing? You're giving your all as well. And so inside of Jesus, we have his all made available to us. We have my all made available to Jesus. And then we have your all in there, too. What are you doing in there? And we're sort of waving at each other inside Jesus, like, hey. And we're like, you're in here, too? Oh, yeah, I'm in here, too. And you see, your all is deposited in there as well. And so we've got a whole bunch of all going on inside of Jesus. And what the scriptures would understand this as is all in common. Now, as I progress here, that term is going to make a lot more sense because in the book of Acts, we've heard this before and it just sounds immediately, especially this good Americans here, uh, we're like, whoa, we got some socialism going on here and I'm just not interested. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to be preaching socialism here today. I want to communicate Christianity. The fact that things have been so distorted in our understanding that prohibits us from understanding the spirit meaning behind these things is what I want to tag. I want to tag it in my own soul. And I want to tag it in all of our souls so that we do not have an immediate defense against the doctrine of sharing. Okay, do you follow me here? I don't want us to hinder the life of God coming out of us just because we're from North America. I want us to understand that God does value personal property. Did you know that? I could make an argument for personal property scripturally. I could also make a, an argument for sharing your personal property with the body of Christ. I could. I could do both. And so the covenant communities out there that have all things in common, I mean, they have some, some really good arguments they can use. At the same time, I could uh, give a good argument for the governmental reasons why your personal property should be governed by you as a steward and you have, according to the Spirit of God, the willingness to agree to giving it to a local body. But it's not just laid down and the local body can then decide how it wants to spend your bank account. And so all of these things could be argued, none of which I want to go into today. I want us to gain the main 
theme of what Scripture is saying and not argue the actual implications specifically. I want us to allow the Spirit of God to soften us and tenderize us unto personal action. So all in common. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. See, I, that's just... That's, I know some of you are like, I feel very comfortable right now, Eric. Some of us in here know the implications of that. If I were to apply that directly to this body and I say, okay, guys, there's our text. Now we need to recognize that this is a descriptive text in Scripture. It is not a prescriptive. It's not a command. It is a description of how they function in the early church. Does that matter to us? Of course it does. In other words, just because it's descriptive doesn't mean it doesn't have weight to influence our outcome and understanding of the doctrine of sharing. But we do need to recognize the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. Introducing all. It's a big word, by the way. Building a vocabulary for being all in. So we're going to go back to that word. Remember in the, in the picture of the body of Christ, we had suke and we had huparkanta. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through those two words so you understand what it is that the Bible tells us to do with our suke and our huparkanta. So suke, it's basically your life, your breath, your being. There's not much left to you if you remove the suke. It's just you. Now you can lose your goods, your property, and your wealth and still have your suke. But God doesn't skip over the suke when he makes his commands. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, give me your property, give me your goods, I want it all. And then you keep your suke. He actually asks for this. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his suke will lose it. And he who loses his suke for my sake will find it. Eric, are you willing to give up your life? Are you willing to give up the breath in your lungs? Are you willing to give up this one opportunity you have on this earth to me? And let me have it. If you find it and say, this is my suke, I have one go at this thing, God, and I want it my way, you will lose that suke. But if you forsake that suke and entrust it unto God, and God says, remember, you're in me. I gave you all of me. Now you give me your suke. Okay, this is how the exchange works. I give you my life. You give me yours. See, this is what it means to have all in common with Jesus. And so we enter in and we receive his life. He says, you holding on to something there? Well, I'm just, I'm just thinking that, you know, I'd like to have the benefit of your life, but hold on to mine. He says, well, if you really want my life, you need to give up yours. I use the illustration of the cup. We're the cup or the glass, and we have polluted water inside, uh, a dirty suitcase. A life that is not going anywhere is just deserving of death and condemnation. We're holding on to it. He wants to pour living water into this cup, but what do we have to do? We have to give up and forsake our first life. You see, what we're giving up is nothing compared to what he gives to us, and we're all measuring the value of our suitcase. We're like, that's, that's a lot, God. Well, do you know what he's given to you? He has given everything, not because we deserved it, and he's asking for our little diddly squat suke. And he'd like to give us all of himself. Don't let your suitcase stand in the way. Oh, big word. Huparakanta. Typically translated possessions, worldly goods, property. 
It's your possessions, worldly goods, wealth, and property, but in a deeper sense. Huparkanta is more than that, and anyone who walks a step in the shoes of a Christian understands this. It's more than just what you possess in a bank account. It's the goods of life. It's the stuff that is transactable, that is giveable. For instance, I have time. I could hold on to my time, or I could relinquish my time. My time could be my own, or it could belong to God. What do you do with that huparkanta of time? What do you do with your energies? I have strength. I could do something with it. I could use it for myself, or I could give it to God and let him use it for his purposes. Talents, strength. You see, we have something that is more than just material goods, and that's why I would like us to go beyond just the understanding of property and bank accounts when we understand this message of sharing. You see, it is a life that is being shared. It is not merely money. We as the church, especially in North America, have a very difficult time seeing anything outside the dollar bill. When in actuality, the Bible is literally integrates into every sphere of our huparkanta. It is every aspect of what is under our rulership. And huparkanta, if you ever see the, the Greek uh, word hyper or hooper, it means above. Hupo, which is in this word, is actually that which is beneath. Arkanta, which has this idea of rulership or life. In other words, it's that which is under the control of our life. That which is at our disposal. God is going to touch that which is under your disposal, under your governance. He says, hey, what's that under your governance? It's not just talking about possessions of material things. It is that which is under your disposal. You have one life to live and you got stuff. So I always call it the stuff of life or the goods that are under your being. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your huparkanta and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The test to the rich young ruler. And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his huparkanta. That's not where you're going to find life, guys. If you hold on to it, you don't find life in your huparkanta. You think you do. You think that if you have this and you build this up, that you will find a greater satisfaction in life, when in actuality you will find by giving that up and relinquishing it, you will find it in a greater place known as Jesus Christ. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake his huparkanta cannot be my disciple. Whoa, that one is just way too straightforward. I'm not sure if I like that scripture. I wonder if we could edit that one out. Well, we know we can't. And this one just sort of cuts to the chase. Your suke and your huparkanta, your life and your fortune. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, there's certain things that are oftentimes standing in the way of our forward movement. It's our life and our fortune. It's that which is under our governance that we want to hold on to. You see, I'm going to make a distinction here. I'm not necessarily going to say that God is telling you to give your money to someone else in the room here. I'm going to say he's asking for you to give your huparkanta to him. That is how Christianity works. You bring it into Jesus. When you come into Jesus, you bring your life and your fortune. When I got married to Leslie, 
I didn't sign a prenuptial agreement which kept my life and my fortune over here and I said, well, you can have you know, my name. But what a ridiculous marriage that would be. There's quite a few of them going on in this world today. Marriage covenant involves a giving of everything. All I have, all I am, and all I have is yours. All they have and all they are becomes mine. For better, for worse, whether sick you know, or healthy, whether wealthy or poor, it makes no difference. In Jesus, we enter into a covenant with him and we offer up our life and fortune. And he gives us his life and his fortune in exchange. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that his huparakanta was his own, but they had all things in common. Ah, that's a hard one. All things in common. So what we have is in and through the sufferings of Jesus, Jesus has made his wealth and his fortune, his very life available to us. Then I respond to Jesus and I step in by faith and I make my life and fortune available to Jesus. And then you do too. And so what we have is in Jesus, we have something that's common. We both have access to Jesus. And in a strange way, Jesus has access to both of us. So in Christ, the Spirit of God can say, Eric, you're, uh, you've given me your life and fortune, right? Well, you see, there's this other believer over here that I would like you to share what you have with them. And because my life and fortune is given to Jesus, Jesus can ask me to share it with you. And in other words, this is how he takes of that which we have and strengthens that in the body. So the word that we're basically going to build on in the Greek, I don't want you to be, I have way too many Greek words in this, and I actually had a lot more that I cut out. This is, this is one of those messages that when you speak English, it's, it's a little difficult, but it's because the Greek understanding of what is taking place here sort of blows our North American mentalities out of the water. Koinonia, introducing koinonia. Now, some of you have heard that. I grew up in a koinonia group, you know, some small group that met in a home, you know, it was like a little uh, subgroup of a church, and it was a koinonia group. Good word. And in fact, I shouldn't even say that. Great word, oftentimes used in very small ways in modern Christianity. So what amazing... It's the amazing thing that happens when we all give our lives and our possessions to Jesus. What you could call it when all of us enter into Jesus and all of us say, I'm in. All of me. My time, my energies, my resources, all of it is available to Jesus. And then you do the same. The result of that is we have all things in common. And we have koinonia. That is the concept for it. So koinonia. The miraculous and supernaturally empowered sharing of the body. Heavenly communion, sacred fellowship. Koinonia is typically going to be translated communion or fellowship. So the fellowship of his sufferings, which we talked about last week. The koinonia of his sufferings. You see, when you enter into Jesus, in and through his sufferings, you now share in his name, in his identity in his sufferings. You see, all over this world, the body of Christ is being maligned and persecuted, and God suffers. 
His body is suffering. He suffers. They have all things in common. That suffering is shared by Jesus. It's not just some isolated suffering out there where Jesus goes, oh, poor thing. He shares it. It is his body. And he is currently suffering. But what we fail to realize is we've also stepped into that. And we share in the same suffering. However, most of us are disconnected from that reality and we feel nothing. And so there's a numbness in a certain aspect of our Christianity because we have not had all things in common. We immediately think socialism. We immediately think finances. And as a result, we do not enter into the sharing of the fellowship of his sufferings. We do not enter into the sharing of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The koinonia of the Holy Spirit, another term for it. Christianity is not just me and Jesus. This is how most of us, I, I, I've said the word North America quite a few times, one more time. In North American Christianity, it's a very individualistic idea. And I'm not even saying that Christianity doesn't mark the individual. I mean, when people say oh, it's all us and there's no individual identity, well, that's, that's weird. That's not how things work. Could you imagine I'm looking at my family and I go, you guys are the Ludies. And then Hudson goes, well, isn't my name Hudson? No, you're the Ludies now. And so, hey, Ludies. And so Hudson by himself is saying, hi, Ludies. And he's like, well, I'm just Hudson. No, you have no individual identity anymore. In other words, we do have individual identity. We are valued as individuals. But there is a dimension that we oftentimes miss, and that is that we are also part of a body. And so Christianity is not just me and Jesus. It's me and you guys. This is sort of strange. It's like, what are you doing in my walk with Christ? I was like having a walk with Christ, and then you guys just sort of got in there. How did you get in my walk with Christ? And so as an American Christian, I want to separate myself from the weirdness that is the body of Christ, the pain that comes with the people. I know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It wouldn't be a lot easier. I mean, if the church was a whole bunch of golden retrievers, we'd just dive in head first. (laughs) Instead, it's a whole bunch of humans. And I tell you what, just let me have my private relationship with Jesus. You can have your private relationship with Jesus, and we'll call it good. Instead, in my relationship with Jesus, I get his all. And they're right next to me is you. Like, what, what are they doing here? God, this is like my time with, what, what are they doing here? You see, God cares about this. He cares about what's going on between us. In fact, the signal hallmark that we are in Christ is going to be our love for one another in Christ. In our relationship with Christ, we evidence the fact that we truly are there by how we love one another. So God is going to exercise my relationship with himself in how I relate to you. Though there might be part of me that wants to ignore the body, wants to isolate myself, there is still a demand upon the spirit working in me that is going to take me outward to share and also, get this, to receive from the body. Taking communion with the Rosens. Little did the Rosens know they were going to end up in my message. Steve Rosen was the one leading worship. Then we had uh, Kate, who was over here singing, and Anna over here. So they're a big part of our church. There's some Rosens down there, too. Uh, and we were getting together on Tuesday nights. One of the most special memories I have in our church. We were getting together on Tuesday nights, and God was doing a very beautiful work in our midst. And I want to say that it could have been Aaron Vogel that brought it up, but we were going to take communion. And 
it was it was nominated or someone uh, gave the idea of saying maybe we could take it with the body instead of individual like when we take communion we all sit in our seat and we take it it's us and god and i think it was aaron you can correct me if i'm wrong that actually brought up this idea and it was actually rather strange sounding it was like take it with the body and i tell you what that night and i know because i was with the roses i know that we've talked about it was supremely impacting upon us it was somewhat awkward i have to admit i had a you know a little uh piece of bread i don't know if it was the gluten-free variety we do offer that here uh and we had uh the juice and i want to say that i stuck the bread in steve's mouth and he stuck it in mine uh, yeah so when you say it, awkward yes because that's like the type of thing you do at a wedding you know with cake and you stick it in their mouth <laughs> And yet, I learned something in and through that for whatever reason that I had a blind spot around. And that is precisely what communion is. It is a remembrance of the givenness of the body of Christ. And that it was given to us in common. The whole point of that givenness is it involves a body. And that we have a common unity or let me say it this way a common union known as communion what is our common union our faith in jesus and communion is not just something of me and jesus it's actually us and each other in jesus it is a celebrating a life as one now i don't know that it has to involve bread on the tongue I like that however it was profound so I'm willing to get even more awkward and do things that are even more painful to see the realities of the kingdom of heaven revealed here. Communion, a common union. Intimate sharing, intimate fellowship, deep common sharing. This is the word for koinonia, translated. So when we say we're going to take communion, we're going to take koinonia? That's what it is. It is the sharing of the body. God shared it with us, but what we fail to connect is that we are also in the process sharing. We are sharing all that we are back. When we oftentimes will go through communion here at Ellerslie, we'll mention that too. Jesus didn't just give us his body. He said, could I have your body? And when we are taking of that body, we're saying my body belongs to you. What we fail to, I think, understand is that my body is available to the body of Christ as well that i would suffer for you that i would gladly take stripes on my back to preserve you and if it meant defending the integrity of this body that i would suffer on behalf of this body that that's the common union this is what jesus has done for us and we do it one unto the other if you are a believer in jesus christ then you and i both share a common father a common savior a common life a common love, a common purpose, a common inheritance. We have a lot in common. We share a common union, a communion in Christ. It's not an amazing thought. Now, for whatever reason, this is so obvious. I know, even as I go through, it's like, yes, of course. And some of you are like, I know this, Eric. Maybe it's me that just needs to hear this. Maybe God's like, get up there and talk really loud, Eric, and you'll finally get it. Considering the vow of the body. So when you get married, 
there's an exchange of vows. It's a symbol of covenant. Covenant is all about exchange. So I'm going to give you a sample vow that I've been pondering. Eric Ludi, will you take this body to be your eternal family? To love and to cherish? To share with your, to share with your blessings? To receive from in times of need? To give unto your talents, riches, and time? And to receive from the exquisite kindnesses and mercies only found in the life of God and his people? I do. Imagine Eric making this declaration. I have the life and love of Jesus. Here, I give it unto you. This is something that I think needs to mature in our understanding. Because of the nature of our culture, which is very independent and very individualistic, these sorts of notions seem like entering into someone's personal space. Remember my message on uh, the guy that kisses? And, you know, there were a few people in here like, finally! You know, and then the rest of us are like, ah! (laughs) At the same time, the historic church didn't have the same boundaries that we oftentimes do now. I don't want to press that in a manner that makes us unhealthy, where we do things that just, you know, we do them because we're supposed to, as opposed to the fact that it's an outflow of love. But what I want each one of us to do is allow the Spirit of God to soften us around the edges, to allow us to begin to progress. You see, we praise God for people like Darius Bell who will come right up to you and give you a smackaroo right on the cheek. And yet, it's not that easy to always give the smackaroo right back. And I want it to flow out of something genuine. I want us to give not because we feel compelled to share of our life. I want the Spirit of God to do a deep work in us so that it is what we do because of our faith in Jesus. Before you get all weirded out over the notion of giving all and having everything in common, I want you to remember Jesus. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We have something known as communion. That's what we call it, koinonia. And we do it regularly in our midst as a practice. And most of us are thinking to remember Jesus instead of remembering what Jesus did. He shared. He gave his life. He gave his body. He says, now you know that you're the body. So are you willing to give your body? Are you willing to give your blood, which is a symbol of life, to each other? Remember, I'm washing your feet. But what you're seeing your master and your teacher doing, I want you to do one unto the other. Okay, you guys getting the point here? I'm giving my body to you. I'm dying, but I'm giving you a model and a pattern so that you can do it one unto the other. God's huparkanta. Isn't that weird to think that God has possessions, property? He has substance that is under his governance. What does it say of God's huparkanta? He gives a parable. Listen to this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Sounds a little like Jesus. Who called his own servants and delivered his huparkanta to them. Isn't that an incredible statement? That Jesus came from a far country. And his servants, he gave his huparkanta to us. The astounding sharing of God. I, I, I couldn't get this statement out of, out of my mind. It is such a profound thing. And every time we get to this line in how deep the Father's love for us, it does strike 
marvel within my soul. I just think I need a greater level of marvel even than what I have. How do I get it down to the point where I recognize it's not just what he did, it's what he desires to do in and through me. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. I'm going to read that again. Why should I gain from his reward? He's the one that deserves the reward, and yet I gain. You may have talents and abilities that someone around you doesn't have. Why should they gain from your talents and your abilities? You may have wealth. You may be brilliant with your finances. And the guy down the street in the church isn't. Why should he benefit from what you know and your skill and talent? I cannot give an answer. It is beyond human description to understand the love of God and how it functions within the body of Christ. It mystifies the world. They have no ability to comprehend that sort of thing. I'm not saying throw out personal responsibility. I'm not saying throwing out work ethic. I'm saying don't throw out the love of God and the koinonia of God in the process of training Christians to have good character. In other words, for all of us to recognize that we are the body of Christ that is meant to be broken and spilled out for each other. I might as well finish this because it's a good ending. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Koinonia is the miracle that occurs when the body of Christ begins sharing as Jesus shared with them. It's a miracle. And when it happens, I think we'll know it. When we see it in our individual lives, we'll know it. But it's the miracle that occurs when the body of Christ begins sharing as Jesus shared with them. Let's understand the word koinonia. It comes from its root word is koinos, Shared by all, common to everyone. It's interesting because to the Jews, if something was koinos, that meant it was not reserved alone for a very particular people, like the Levites. The Levites alone could do the work of the temple. They were consecrated under that purpose. And yet the word koinos would be, that's for everyone. So that's a profane thing, which means it's mundane or it's everyone's common use. It's not sacred and set apart. And so this very idea at its core seems to go against the grain of a holy God. A holy God who says, this is the way I am and you can have no part with me unless you are holy like I am. And so if priests are going to enter my presence, they must go through this practice to be sanctified and consecrated to actually do it. You need to be covered in blood. So it's an elaborate process. And this is the root word used to describe what we share that we share it in common. Koinonos, companion, partaker, partner. You know, you're a koinonos in the body of Christ. Did you know that? You can start calling yourself that. You can come up to someone, how are you doing today? Oh, koinonos. <laughs> Koinoneo, this is a verb. So this is the action of sharing. This is the action of entering into Christ. This is the action of sharing your body, sharing your resource. This is the action of making that which you have common. So to come into communion or fellowship with, to become a sharer, to be made a partner. And then here's our word that we're landing on. Now I'm going to give you two definitions. The first one is sort of the dictionary definition. Fellowship, communion, the share which one has in anything, intimacy. Good definition. However, I think many of us have heard that definition. 
I'd like to go a little beyond that into what we're talking about today. It's the all-in of the believers. It's the common union. It's the sharing, the delighting of the life and love of Jesus Christ together as one intimate fellowship. We had, I've had moments where I've tasted this. Tasted it at such a level where tears were in my eyes and I was choking even as I was worshiping or praying because I, I tasted heaven. It's like I, I, I sensed it. It was interesting, even as the, we have a, a group that's D1.5s. They're like halfway between D1 and D2 training. And we meet uh, basically every day during the week at around 11. And we were late because the session on Friday ran long and we were meeting. We only had like 22 minutes. And I tell you what, it was extremely powerful, like 22 minutes. And I don't know how else to describe it, but it was like heaven. So one of the students, well, I came in and they were singing. And then one of the other students led a song, Amazing Grace. And I think every verse plus a bonus one. Uh, And then we went around and we drew names out of a, a hat. And oh, I think we prayed first. Everyone just sort of the spontaneous prayer of thanksgiving unto God. And then everyone had been studying the grace of God. And we had a little bowl that all the students just can't stand and it has their names in it. <laughs> and pulled out names and they all shared just a statement about what they were studying the grace of God. It was so edifying, so enriching. And it wasn't academic. What would you call it? Even though we all learned. We learned the body of Christ. We learned that everyone comes with something. That we all come to share something. We all come ready to give. When the Holy Spirit asks of us, whether it's resources like finances that might be in our pocket, or something that is hidden in our soul, that we're ready and willing to give it up. Yeah, I have something that could edify. I have something that could give. I have something that could help here. I have a talent that could be used for that. We all come. It doesn't mean we have to do something like just dump our fortune in the middle of the church here and go, okay, did I take care of things? Is that what you meant, Eric? No, it's not what I mean. Give it to God. And then as he leads, you're ready to give. You're ready. You're in a posture which says, God, hey, you haven't given me a a task to give in a long time. I, I need to give. You're ready to give. You know that if you're studied up for a test, you want someone to ask you a question? You ever notice that? It's like when you're really studied hard, there's nothing worse than not giving, you know, the, the, the teacher says, hey guys, I, I decided not to give you the test. What? No, no. No, all that, all that training, all that practice was so that you could give me the test. I want to prove that I know it all. And so in this environment, we want to show God our readiness. So we have all of our resource, all of who we are that's just waiting. And we're like, God, where are you going to direct it? You see, we're in Christ together and our first priority is right here. And you know that we have suffering brothers and sisters even in this town. And we have them all over northern Colorado. Technically all over Colorado. I know, I'm going to blow you away with this one. All over this country. I I know, brace yourselves. All over North America, okay. All over North and South America. All right. All over the world that are suffering in the name of Jesus. And they're right there with us. And Jesus is feeling what they're feeling. You see, it's a common body. They have all things in common, they and Jesus. Do we have it in common with them? And as a result, are we willing to be broken over what breaks Jesus? Are we willing to be bruised over what bruises Jesus? Are we willing to carry 
the weights emotionally and psychologically that he carries so that we can enter into a common fellowship, a koinonia of his sufferings and know him in the deepest, most intimate way and in so doing know each other. God intends us to know each other too, not just know him. And that's part of his delight. The principle of koinonia, the body of Christ is built to share, to bleed, to suffer on behalf of, and to koinoneo, that's the verb, to make common its treasure store. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and koinonia, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. God is faithful by whom you were called into the koinonia of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, into the common fellowship of his son. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the koinonia of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the koinonia of the body of Christ? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the koinonia of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That the koinonia of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. This is a beautiful one, okay? If you have a seatbelt, put it on for this one. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have koinonia with us. And truly, our koinonia is with the Father and with his son, Jesus. So we have koinonia, yes, but our truest koinonia that we all have is with him. We have koinonia together because of a koinonia we have with him. If we say that we have koinonia with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I'm going to read a line just so you don't miss it here. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia with one another. If we do not have koinonia with one another, something's wrong. That's the point. In other words, one of the key evidences to show that we're walking in the light is that we do have koinonia. The koinonia of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to enter into a oneness, a commonness with the Holy Spirit, what's the Holy Spirit's burden? You just imagine, to reveal Jesus Christ, to show his glory, to convict of sin, that truth would reign in this generation, that the glory of King Jesus would be made known, that lost would be found that those that are on the outs and the powers of darkness and the stranglehold of death would find life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you enter into a koinonia with that? You enter into a fellowship and a commonness where you share a common ache as the Holy Spirit has? Whoa, whoa, what's that gonna be like? It's called the koinonia of the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit is willing to suffer loss, expend all, and bleed life that others might live? We are entering a life that actually practically cares about a dying world. It actually practically cares about the health of the body of Christ. And for whatever reason, we are in this body. The first way that we practice koinonia is in our family. Because if you care for the body of Christ and forsake your own family, you're no better than an infidel. In other words, we start with that which is nearest. We start with our marriages. We start with our families. If you're living at home, your parents and your brothers and sisters. You give and you begin to share your life. You share your time. You share your energies. You share what God has put inside of you. Then we come here and we begin to practice this at a greater level. 
But as we are here, we begin to remember that there's a body even here in Windsor that needs support, that needs grace. We're not just an ingrown toenail here. We begin to turn outward and say, you know what? We're still in Christ with them around us. We don't know as the body of Christ today how to function outside of a local body with other local bodies. I mean, it's just strange because they believe funny things. They don't have the same exact doctrinal viewpoint on this. And so as a result, it's like, hey, they're out of my relationship with God. I have no idea what they're doing, but I can't imagine that God has given them any favor. And so as a result, even though there they are in Christ with us, we shun them. And we close off that flow of love. We don't have all things in common. And so what I want us to begin to cultivate isn't necessarily a practical answer for everyone, but a practical answer for each of us as individuals. Wherever we're at today, I want us to exercise this. The surprising blessing of koinonia. As we share our lives, the stuff of our lives, the goods of our lives, we find something even greater than earthly stuff. We discover eternal consolation. Last week we were talking about suffering. It was called grape school. And that when you give up your life, you actually find something. The Bible calls it consolation. And at first, I think most of us would say, the pains of suffering are definitely not going to be outweighed by what God is giving. Consolation? That just sounds like some little ribbon that you might get at some county fair. Your pig came in seventh and you got a consolation prize. It's like, thank you. (laughs) That's not what God means by consolation. A consolation is the deepest comfort the deepest, most intimate touch upon the soul where God goes beyond what we could even fathom and he comforts us and brings joy and life to us even in a prison cell. We have a song bubbling up inside of us. He gives us what is known and translated as consolation. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. You're not going to lose it. I know at first it looks like you're giving up so much. To give up your life as you now know it, to share all that you are. It's like, whoa, God, I'm going to lose everything. No, you're going to find everything. You see, you cannot outgive God. So if you give up and relinquish control of your holdings, you're going to find that your holdings massively increase. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you be also of the consolation. Uh, Consolation, the reward of suffering. So very simply put, as you give up your life, as you enter into the life of Jesus and you make all things common with him. My life belongs to you, Lord Jesus. You now share in that which is common to him. That which is his, which is also a burden, which is also suffering, which is also persecution. You share in that. However, you receive something so much greater. We'll call it the reward of suffering, consolation, the amazingly deep and profound blessing and comfort supplied to the soul by the koinonia of his sufferings. So, You guys have heard the word koinos. You even learned a verb, uh, koinoninos. I forgot how, I can't say it. And then koinonia, which is the actual fellowship itself. Now, when you think of the two languages that make up the word of God, you have Hebrew in the Old Testament with a little Aramaic, and then you have in the New Testament Greek. But it's a very specific kind of Greek. It's called koine Greek. 
Isn't that just an amazing thought to think that God chose a very specific kind of language to even utilize to share what we are talking about today. The sharing of the body literally is koinonia. And the Bible is written in koine Greek to reveal a common Jesus. A Jesus has been made available to all. So koine, which means common or shared in Greek, was a language spoken in the eastern Mediterranean countries from the 4th century B.C. until the time of the Byzantine emperor Justinian. Justinian, sorry, mid-6th century A.D. The life of Jesus Christ and the understanding of the new covenant in his blood is written in a language that literally means common to all men, shared with all. I, I just think that's amazing. You might as well enjoy it too. Hebrews 10. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your huparconta, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You see, what you have in Christ is eternal. And so though you might lose everything in this side because you are a believer, because you have come to Christ, you make it all available. And it may be stripped from you. It may, just like we see here. But they joyfully accepted the plundering, which means the taking, the ruthless taking of their huparconta, their goods, their possessions, their property. But knowing that they have a better and an enduring possession for themselves in heaven. Do we know that? That what we have in Christ far outweighs any goods, wealth, material possession we have here on this earth. So how do we start? Well, we take our suke and our huparconta and we entrust them to Jesus. That's elementary school level first step. We turn to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you are worthy. You have given me your life. Here's my life. And here's my huparconta. Now, I don't want you to do that blindly where you don't know what you're doing and you get caught and you're like, what did Eric tell me to do? I can't. God, that doesn't count. I didn't really know what I was doing. I want you to know what you're doing. I want you to count the cost and fully understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. You want him? Give him you. All of you. You want a great marriage? Don't hold back. Give all you have and all you are. You share everything. That's what makes intimacy and koinonia fellowship in marriage work. If you hold back and keep back a portion, you will find that the intimacy will immediately suffer. But when you give of your life and you share your best energies, your talents and your resources with a spouse and then with a family and then with a bigger family, you begin to learn intimacy. You begin to learn life and health and it shocks the world because they cannot figure out what's going on inside here. They can't understand the love that we have for one another. But it's a love that we are finding from Jesus first. But we have that in common. We all share in the same love. So our entire life and future, our every breath on this earth, our time, our health and energy, our knowledge and wisdom, our gifts, skills, and abilities, our uniqueness and creativity, our resources and our relationships, our homes and family, our material wealth. God, these belong to you. Do with them as you see fit. In so doing, he very likely is going to begin to train us how to serve one another. Because when he touches that, he'll say, now that's mine, right? Yes, that's yours. I would like you to take 
from what is now mine, Eric, but it's still under your jurisdiction of control, and give it over here to someone in the body. Well, that might be new. It's like, well, that's uncomfortable. That's beyond my 10%. You see, all of it belongs to Jesus Christ. And as we trust him in that process, he will mature us in Koinonia Fellowship. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.